Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Good evening. It's so great to be back together as a group for another Tuesday, and also since many of you here were at the workshop with Stephen and Martine Bachelor over the weekend. And um, for me, anyways, it was very inspiring, uh, not only to share a weekend with all of most of you, um, but also just to hear somebody articulate a vision for a creative practice that's in tune with uh, these times. And... Um, and to not uh, get caught up in some of the uh, traditional languages that maybe um, don't have resonance with us, and that sometimes we repeat even though we don't realize they don't have resonance with us until we examine them in more detail. And um, my interest in this practice has always been about um, a way of waking up uh, with other people as a culture, as a society, as a civilization. And at the same time, I've never been interested in uh, too much in um, formal community, organized intentional communities. Um, I've participated in my life in some spiritual communities, and they always, you know, make me feel like that. <laughs> um, and uh, so it's so nice when we can really start to understand Sangha as what happens in the small ways we become friends and learn about each other's practices and start to see the way these practices get refined in a life and not just um, mastery of one particular technique or another particular technique, but actually to see how these things come alive in our lives. And I think that in our culture at this time, whether you're in a formal community that has a temple or you practice yoga postures, for example, in a commercial yoga studio, we often don't get a chance to actually see the way that the practice comes alive in somebody's way of seeing and thinking and walking and trying and working and creating and meditating. And we often just see someone's proficiency in backbending and forward bending or uh, in reciting certain sutras by heart, um, that kind of um, refinement of one particular skill, uh, which doesn't necessarily affect the other parts of our lives. Um, so this weekend for me was uh, nice because the way I was sitting in the room, I could, I could hear the teachings, practice, and also look around and see all these people in their bodies and see how their practice has matured over the years, um, or even some of you over months. And um, it's really inspiring, and it makes me want to keep sitting here on Tuesdays and doing this. And um, that way we can have a, a meditation practice, a physical practice, an art practice, a talking practice, a listening practice, that are all interdependent and also connected to this world um, and not caught up in an old language that's just about certain precepts or vows or rules that one follows. Um, in the same way that, you know, like Christians invented physics, but we don't call it Christian physics or something. Mm -hmm. Or like Muslims created algebra, but we don't call it Muslim algebra. 
Um, maybe there's a way we can practice with a value system where the value system is dependent on every moment we find ourselves in. And it's not a particularly yogic ethics or Buddhist ethics, but it's a, an, a, a way of responding to each moment that's situational or particular to that moment that comes out of a life of, of practice and devotion to something, long-term devotion to something other than just what our culture keeps handing us, whether from the past or now in the form of uh, consumerism and persona creation and so on. So um, I hope this is what we're doing together. Um, My goal tonight is to finish the first chapter of the Yoga Sutra. I told Stephen we're studying line by line. It's been going on for nine months. He said, like, (laughs) speed it up a little bit. (laughs) And um, I'm going to try and speed it up a little bit. So I have this idea. So what I'd like to do is finish the first chapter tonight. And then I would really like to um, change the tone of how I teach the beginning of the second chapter. And instead of uh, sitting up here and giving a kind of talk about how it's related to your practice in your life, I wanted to teach the beginning of the second chapter more as like a philosophy course. And so I'd like to have handouts. I want to do some required reading before Tuesday night. And I'd also really like a whiteboard so I can draw. Does anybody have a whiteboard that they could bring for the next three, like leave here for the next three weeks? Does it? Yeah, do you have one that's portable that would work? Can we use non-toxic smelly pens? Do you have non-toxic smelly pens? I've got some. Yeah? Okay. Yeah? Mary, you have a can on you? Yeah. Okay. Amazing. So good. Do you have one of those laser pointers <laughs> that cats like? <laughs> no, we don't. I could all use them to point at you when you're not sitting properly. <laughs> your, your eyeballs. <clears throat> Let's look together at this last section. We're at line 46 and 47. I think we we ended at 46 last week. Um, I I, I think I'll start reading at 42, just so you're not confused. So this is the section where... So do you remember that the name of this chapter is Samadhi? Yes? And um, the word Samadhi literally means integration. It's the coming together towards uh, the falling away of subject and object. And it's interesting because most of the time we think of samadhi as the goal of yoga, but actually the first chapter starts by talking about samadhi. And in order to talk about samadhi as a concentration practice, so not samadhi as something that happens to you or that one day you're going to get to this state of samadhi or have this this eternal trait now of samadhi. But samadhi is actually a technique, and it's something that you practice. I remember um, in the mid-90s when I had a yoga crisis, I was practicing yoga, and uh, I I was unemployed. All I did was I practiced postures, meditation, I studied, I went to different teachers, and then eventually I had this kind of crisis where... I didn't understand the connection between the practices. I didn't know which one to go further on or why. And then I started asking teachers and nobody could really answer. So I went uh, to the US and I decided to just go find all the most famous teachers I could find. This was mostly in the yoga world, and um, which is easy to find. And study with them and ask them these questions. And you know, nobody really gave me a satisfying answer. And so I decided to actually quit practicing. 
and um, realized that I had just wasted my life for <laughs> seven years. <laughs> and uh, so I, I bought a ticket to go to India and to study with uh, Patabi Joyce for six months and then Mr. Iyengar for six months. And um, uh, just before, I, this is really expensive, and I, I had no, no money. And so just before I was going to go, I found out that Patabi Joyce was going to be visiting in Boulder, Colorado. Um, and I thought, before I go spend six months with this man, who supposedly doesn't speak English, I should go to Boulder, Colorado and, and practice with him. And he was teaching the second series there for two weeks. And I went and I, and I, you know, the first few days of practice were kind of interesting, but I had sort of retired. So um, I wasn't really interested anymore in the practice. And next to me uh, was Richard Freeman, who was practicing, who, you know, obviously has a, you know, beautiful, elegant practice, but I actually didn't care that much. Um, but then slowly, as time went on, I started watching Richard, how he was with his dog, and with his son Gabriel, who was quite small at the time, who was really big, and, uh, and his wife Mary. And, uh, and then I said, oh, can I talk to you about this crisis I'm having? So we went to his house, made dinner, and sat on his kitchen table. And, and he said, well, what's your practice? So I said, oh, you know, eight limbs of yoga. <laughs> he said, well, how do you practice them? I said, oh, well, you know, I'm fairly ethical, and I meditate a little bit, and I do yoga postures. He said, oh, well, how do you practice, like, the fifth limb? I said, well, what do you mean? You know, just, it's the fifth limb. I, I kind of know what it is. Well, how do you practice it? I remember I couldn't answer. And it was like suddenly a light went off. And I, and I had this realization that these eight limbs are not something that you know about, or something that kind of like get born out of one another, but each limb is a technique. In the same way that on the weekend we were learning how each part of the um, eight-limbed path in the Buddha's teaching is a task. And similarly, you could compare the, the eight limbs of Patanjali in this way. That this is something that you do. And I always thought of samadhi, which is the last section of this chapter, as something that like just happens to you one day. I actually didn't even, I had a fuzzy idea of how it would happen, but I thought one day I'd be walking along and then samadhi. <laughs> and I remember in Boston once, seeing on the side of a bus, there was an a, advertisement for a retreat, like, like a vacation in Bali or somewhere. And the phone number was 1-800-GET-SAMADHI. <laughs> underneath it, it said, and don't put it off another lifetime. <laughs> and, I, and I think for most of us, samadhi is not like a technique that you do and that you refine, uh, like learning uh, an arpeggio or something. But samadhi is that you practice long enough and then this the sky opens or the sea opens or whatever, and then you're, you're there, you're in samadhi. And so I mention this because I think it's important to look at this last section as something that you actually do in your meditation practice and not some kind of glorified utopia that's going to happen to you if you follow the rules and the eight limbs and so on. Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. So as we read it, let's remember that this is a textbook and these are meditation instructions. You think that's possible? Yeah, and so everything you know about samadhi or whatever words you use, kensho or satori, you know, just put those aside and see if you can hear in here Patanjali trying to teach you something about how to work with your mind. And you're also going to see that he's doing it in a way that's very, very skillful and um, doesn't allow you to idealize samadhi as a goal of practice. He nowhere, nowhere does he say that samadhi is the goal of yoga. He never says that. But I think becomes, because it's number eight, and because the Indians love lists, that they say, like, the first limb is ethics, and if you do good ethics and you progress on the limbs, then you get number eight, which is samadhi. But nowhere does Patanjali talk like this. And so hopefully we'll see it here in this section. So, line 42. 
So long as conceptual or linguistic knowledge pervades this transparency, it is called samapati with thought. Maybe I should say something about the word samapati. So the word samadhi, which is coalescence, samadhi means integration, but samapati literally means to fall together. To fall together. And what's interesting, some of you might be wondering, is if there are eight stages of samadhi, then why does he not call each stage a version of samadhi? Why does he bring in this other word, which is samapati, to talk about the different stages of samadhi? And the reason is, is because samadhi talks about the way subject and object come together. But samapati, and actually, etymologically, the word samapati actually also can be translated as coincidence. And it refers to the fact that when you do the practice of coming back over and over again to the breath, to sensations in the body, to sound, you create the conditions for concentration to arise. So rather than thinking of concentration as this thing you work really hard at by counting your breath and not letting in any thoughts and getting tight around one thing, Patanjali seems to be suggesting for the first four versions of samadhi that it happens like a coincidence happens. And all you can really do is set up the conditions for concentration to happen. But you don't like go concentrate like some heroic method of practice where you're trying to get somewhere. And I think all of us know this who've done some retreats, that when you meditate to try and get somewhere, then probably within a few hours or days, your body will start yelling at you. Because it's too tight. It's too tight. And actually the way that we get deeper in states of samapati is just relaxing. And that's actually how you get from one state of concentration to another, is by relaxing into it. And that's why Patanjali introduces this new word, samapati, or coincidence, rather than um, continuing to use the word samadhi, which sets up more of a linear understanding of uh, concentration. At the next stage, called coalescence beyond thought, objects cease to be colored by memory. Now formless, only their essential nature shines forth. Hopefully you've listened to the talks on the internet, so that, or, or you've been here, so that I'm not going to go over all these in as much detail tonight so we can get through them, but basically what he's talking about is, so in the seventh limb of yoga which is dharana, which is like mindfulness practice, we pick an object. Remember, this was frustrating, I think. Was it for you, Grant, that was frustrated by this? You pick an object, and Patanjali just said, anything will do. And you just come back to it over and over again. In the eighth limb of yoga, you, or sorry, that's the sixth limb of yoga. Seventh limb of yoga, dhyana, you can stay with that object or any object. And what that means is, so first when we're meditating, if something becomes predominant, like a sensation or a thought, you notice it, and then you come back to your breathing, okay? <clears throat> if the breath is the object. But then in the seventh limb, in dhyana, we actually let the mind focus on anything that becomes predominant. So if a sound is there, and it's interesting, you don't go off with it, but you notice it, and in the noticing of it, that is the object of meditation. And then something else comes up, and you notice that. And something else comes back, and you notice that. And if you get too far into it by thinking about it or too many associations, then you come back to your breathing and you start again. But this is the move from the sixth limb to the seventh limb, is that we can, we can let anything become the predominant object of concentration. And I think you all know this in your practice, right? When you first start practicing, your work is just coming back to the breath. And then after a while, you notice it's actually okay to have a thought and to notice a sound. And it's not actually a distraction because you're noticing it without a lot of reactivity. 
And then this sets the stage for concentration, samadhi, where then you come back to an object and you notice it quite effortlessly. And then Patanjali says, then you can notice it with thinking about it and notice it without much language. And then you can notice it with memory and notice it without much memory. And you can try this on your own, even with things like feelings. Imagine feeling a feeling without associating to it, without having so much memory about it. And actually seeing the way you attach memory or attach a backstory or something historical to something that's actually arising now, which then actually prevents it from really arising or prevents you from really knowing it and then prevents it from passing away because you're fixing it in consciousness. And then the feeling itself passes away, but you're still obsessed uh, about some memory you have about it, even though it is not even there. And then you think you're back in the past, but you're not even back in the past, because you're here thinking you're back in the past, (laughs) which you can't ever go back into. And there's no you that can even go back there. (laughs) Because the you that you think can go back there is a construction in this moment of a you that's in relationship to a past that happened to another you, which was this you as you imagine it back then, which is just another story within a story within a story, which is all that you are. (laughs) Real Subtle objects can be traced back to their origin in undifferentiated nature. In other words, everything that arises, we can see arises and passes away back into um, something. Or not, who knows what it is? You can't say what it is or what it isn't. But we all know that everything we notice appears and vanishes. We don't know what it comes out of and we don't know what it falls back into. Nowadays, neuropsychology has been frustrated by this so much that they've had to admit that the mind and the brain are not the same thing. Why? Because they can't find where the stuff of the mind comes out of and goes back into. It's impossible to know. Like all the feelings you have today. Where do they go? We don't know. Sensations appear and disappear, we don't know. They come out of something undifferentiated, they show up differentiated, they become undifferentiated. But unlike previous teachings of Indian philosophy, they don't go back into some pure nature or some God realm. We don't know. We don't know what they... And it's actually not even important. Because if you start to focus on where they came from or where they go you just start following a trail of storytelling, which is just like a kind of theology. I mean, maybe this is the psychology of the creation story, is wanting to find the beginning and building these huge billion-dollar tunnels in Switzerland to bang things together (laughs) to find out the beginning. And, of course, they'll find out that underneath strings there is some other beginning. And then they'll be frustrated because they found something Well, first they'll be excited because they found something, and then they'll be frustrated that they have to find what's underneath that or between that or beyond that or whatever. So Patanjali is saying, actually, you can notice an object by reflecting on it, but then you can also notice that the nature of the object is reflection-free, and the reflection is just something we're bringing to it. And again, this sounds maybe like esoteric meditation, or high-level meditation, but try this in your own life, just when you feel something, to actually just feel something without even reflecting on it. And for those of you who are meditators, to feel something, and at that moment, let that be the object of your meditation. And then the next thing that comes up becomes an object of your concentration. And then you have a kind of meditative state of mind rather than a stiffness 
in what's meditation and what's not meditation. So it's a, it's a quality of awareness. Whoa. <laughs> Sorry, Chip. I don't know where they came out of. <laughs> Numbers? <laughs> and this is like what we do with our feelings, right? We number them, and we have them like in dossiers, like family, you know? And then you have a feeling it's like father. <laughs> father 102.3-1987 Halliburton. <laughs> and then there's like that story related to that feeling. But actually that story did not arise. That story is just the, the, the kind of, a kind of way where we're trying to contextualize a feeling to make it safe for the mind, for the storyteller. So it's not freaked out all the time. <laughs> These four kinds of coalesced contemplation, so there's four kinds of samapati, and now he, 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 he lists them. With thought, without thought, reflecting, not reflecting, are all, ca- are all called bija samadhi. Okay, so this means these are states of concentration that plant seeds in the grooves of your mind, the body, and the body politic. So when you're concentrating and sadness arises, and you can open up to sadness, The first way you'll open up to sadness and meditation is with thought. Then to open to the feeling of sadness without thought. Okay? And usually you won't go any further. Then you'll be like, oh, there was no, that was so cool. You have a whole thought about that. And two years later, with reflection, without reflection. Okay? And the reflection is the self. So in other words, it's, referring it back to a me or not referring it back to a me. Sadness is my sadness. I'm feeling the sadness. And then in the fourth stage, sadness, and we can use any object here, a sound, a a light, a thought, sadness, a sadness. And not feeling sadness and referring it back to a self. That's reflection-free. And those are the four stages of concentration. Not so esoteric, is it? Um, And they bear the seeds of latent impressions called the samskaras. So that means when you can notice sadness without thought, or with thought, there's a story attached to the sadness, and experiencing your sadness like like that Plant is an action, karma, sanskara, karma, that plants a pattern in your neurobiology so that the next time that you notice that sadness, you'll attach that story to it. Okay? But he's saying something more here about neuroplasticity, which is that, but it's not fixed. So that if you notice something without thought, you then plant a new groove in the mind-body process so that you can then trust that you can experience this. Trusting, even when we experience things we've been traumatized about, to start to develop the trust even in our own body, which maybe we haven't trusted, that you can feel something with thought, without thought, referring to a self, or eventually not referring back to a self profound form here of healing not just acrobatics of concentration for you know people in caves or something but I I just want to add one more thing to this that's really important which is that when you do this in the mind and in the body you're also doing it in the fabric of the culture so when you have the capacity to not react to internal states that you so easily despise outside of yourself, (laughs) then that moment is actually planting planting a cultural pattern that allows for the possibility 
of more and more people to work with their potential of craving and grasping. And there's a profound path of activism, actually. And you might sit here and say, how is what we're doing active in society? And actually, there's a great story of Chogyam Trumpa in San Francisco giving a talk and someone saying, how is this a form of social action? And he said, there's a hundred people in the room and no one's done anything bad <laughs> for a whole hour. <laughs> but actually, just, just not to separate um, the fact that there's a cultural momentum within us that's pushing us in ways that are quite chronic and strong, um, but also when we don't act on them, we're actually changing patterns in the civilizational matrix. Yes? There was a, there was a question? Yeah, Rani? I'm a bit confused between the difference of with thought and with reflection, because it seems to me that when there's thought, it's always referring back to a me, or like... What mm-hmm. is the thought tends to refer back to a me, yes. So then in the third stage, mm-hmm. it's just noticing the reference back to me without a lot of narrative. Oh. Yeah. So Not so spring-loaded with... So it would be, could, could it be also that you could say that with thought, you get mm. cut for a longer time sure. until you come back? Yeah. And then in the other one, it's more... Yes. It's faster. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Martine on the weekend called it exaggeration. The first one. The first one. Yeah. But you could say the third one's exaggeration too. Yeah. Yeah. It's exaggerating the importance of this self that this is happening to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could could you say witnessing? Witnessing is it? I don't like using the word witnessing because it seems like it's a part somehow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know it's helpful to talk about witnessing, but it doesn't accurately describe what it feels like to be in concentration it doesn't feel like this is happening separately it's totally visceral and that's why I like to talk about feeling, feeling the breath feeling feelings and so on even I don't want to get too far, far down it but when someone's at this stage in concentration and they start to see how thoughts arise in relation to something one of the techniques uh, a teacher will offer, and this probably only would, would, we would do this on a retreat, is to ask the person, where in your body do you feel the thoughts coming from? Mm-hmm. And this is really cool for people. So somebody is starting to see that they can experience something without a lot of story about it, and then we bring them back to the body to locate, okay, so... When you see a thought start to come, most of us, we catch the thought like way over here. But actually, in meditation, we actually slow that whole process down and increase the spectrum, and we can actually see the thought start to come. Usually, the first thing we see is it start to go. But actually, and the only way you can really see that is to be totally in the body. And, to actually, and, and people will describe different parts of their body where they can actually feel the thoughts start to stem up. And it's really cool. Yeah. And, and so just again to keep bringing this back, this is not like you're standing back dissociated. Or it wouldn't be called samadhi. The reason why it's called samadhi is because the subject and object are really close together. Very intimate. Is it um, also possible that what he's referring to is that with thought, you see the thoughts arise, but you don't initially catch that it's all self-referential? In, in with, thinking? Yes. No, you don't so that, see but, it at all. But, but so what I'm saying is that the third stage, when it's with reflection, yeah. is that you're actually noticing that the thoughts are self-referential, which then also causes them to, you know, evaporate yes. quickly. As soon you know as you saying? notice it, yeah. it just doesn't work anymore. Right, because you then yeah. you realize, oh, this is you become aware of that self-reflexive yeah. mm-hmm. thing, which you don't initially when the thoughts yes. just come. Yes. Okay. I, w- I want to rec- recommend a book I'm going to read from. 
Uh, this just came out. It's published by Shambhala Press by Richard Shankman, and it's called The Experience of Samadhi. And it prevents competing views of what samadhi is, and then has interviews with the leading meditation teachers in the United States who teach concentration practices. And they all disagree with each other. (laughs) It's really interesting. And he doesn't try and make everything work in this book, and it's really lovely. But but I just wanted to read an interview with um, Tanisaro Bhikkhu. Um, He's talking about his teacher, Mahabua, makes a useful distinction between people who naturally find it easy to get the mind into concentration and those who have to analyze their way in. People who naturally find it easy to access concentration and people who can only get it by coming on Tuesday nights to center of gravity (laughs) and analyzing their way in. With this latter group, if they don't really understand what's going on in their minds, they're not able to let go. He's not saying this is bad. He's just saying that. And I would say most of us who are fairly psychological, unless we kind of understand the map, it's, it's, it's a little hard to let go. And for those sorts of people, I would encourage analyzing the breath, looking at how they're conceiving the breath, their perception of the breath, and how their perception of their breath shapes the process of breathing. So he's saying, use the way you're looking at your breath to get closer to your breath. That may sound like a lot of mental activity, but it connects them with the breath because it makes them curious about the breath and the breathing process. They're not going to connect with anything unless they understand it, and it captures their imagination. But then there are people who are just happy to sit with the breath and be very quiet. So you have to tailor your instructions to the individual. For those who find it easy to get very concentrated, the danger is that they haven't had to work for it, and so it's not really a skill. They'll have days when for no reason at all they can't do it. And if they haven't figured out the in and outs of their mind, they can feel totally lost on those days. These are the people who tend to not analyze things very much at all. And they have to be pushed, sometimes against their will, to ask the questions that will give them more insight into what they're doing. This, this, This really strikes a chord for me, because once in a while, somebody who doesn't really look at their mind in an existential way. And I think this is mostly people who do not have a melancholic disposition. Um, (laughs) Or who haven't become therapists or artists. Um, It's always a challenge to talk to them about why they should practice. Because they look into their mind, they see it as a mind, they sit down so they can feel kind of peaceful, they're frustrated when it's not peaceful, but their goal is just to kind of stay peaceful, you know? And they don't really look at themselves in terms of how they process what they're processing and how they're representing their experience back to themselves. They don't always see that whole process. And it's very challenging to get those people to talk clearly about what their motivation is to practice. And so I think that they're the people who tend to not know why they should practice, except that everyone around them is practicing, and that the books all say you should practice. And um, and I think that's what's being touched on here. And and maybe one of the ways is to be creative um, in our instructions so that they get really curious about one small part of what they're doing. And I really like here how he talks about um, getting someone to be curious about their breathing. And there's so many different ways to do that. And I just want to point out that this is what Patanjali just did 
earlier in the chapter. Remember, he, he talks about noticing the inhale, the exhale, getting curious about the pause at the top of the inhale, the bottom of the exhale, changing the objects of meditation. This is all to get you interested, not in the object, but in your mind, in, 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 the, in, in the life of awareness. In the life of awareness. Um, okay, let's keep going because I want to try and finish this chapter. <laughs> yes? Richard Shankman. There's actually... This isn't my favorite book, but it's really good. But for those of you who are, who are actually practicing concentration and really want a great road map, you should read... Fear, fearless... Focused and Fearless by Shayla Catherine. That's the one. That book is so good. It's, it's the best book on concentration I've ever read. Aside from Patanjali. Okay. In the lucidity of coalesced reflection-free contemplation, the nature of the self becomes clear. Not the nature of capital S self. Actually, in Sanskrit, you can't even do a capital. It's just the, the nature of self-form becomes clear. Isn't that interesting? That, that when you see the way you're treating an object, what you actually start to see is not the object but the way you create a self. It becomes clear. Does he say it stops? No. He just says it becomes clear. The wisdom that arises in that lucidity is unerring. Unlike insight acquired through inference or teachings... This wisdom has as its object the actual distinction between the way that consciousness is fluctuating and that awareness is like a mirror that doesn't take the shape of what it's watching. But be careful. He's not saying awareness is something. He's just trying to use a language to show you that the chitta vrittis that give rise to to what we think of as a self is a form of consciousness that can be seen. And he's using this term awareness to talk about the seeing of that without a self-representation. And then he has to spend the whole next chapter trying to get out of that because he's almost setting up a witness. Do you see that? But, But he's not saying the self goes away. And he's also not saying that awareness is a thing. When even... Oh, it generates latent impressions that prevent the activation of other impressions. This is cool. So when you see that the self is just a self, it creates cognitive patterns that undercut the patterns that kept creating a self. to to prevent that from happening. In that moment, in that experience, in that situation, but not forever, just in that moment. Yeah. When even these cease to arise and the patterning of consciousness is completely stilled, integration bears no further seeds. In other words... There can be a moment where we can see something so clearly without creating a self that there is no new pattern made. And this is what neuropsychology loves. This is what they're measuring on MRIs, is meditators who can get so concentrated that the areas of the brains that are planting patterns go quiet. And, and it's so exciting to see this on a screen. 
Or you can just <laughs> read it <laughs> or go on a retreat and save the $9 million of MRI studies. And I want to point out a couple things. He stops here. He stops here. And he leaves us hanging because we've known from the beginning of the chapter that there are more levels of samadhi. And the chapter is called samadhi, but he doesn't go any deeper. He stops here. And the next chapter starts by defining what a self is, and then he teaches ethics. And he doesn't introduce any meditation practices again until he's talked about relationships. Because he sees the self as a relational construction. And he doesn't go further in talking about how to work with this constructed self in meditation until he introduces the yamas, five principles of clarifying our relationships, ethical principles, which is really interesting that he's actually taking the last stages of concentration and adding ethics to them. Because in a way, you could say that concentration is morally neutral. It's ethically neutral. And so he doesn't go any further. And then he starts tying ethical practices into concentration, which is really interesting. Um, His methodology here, by cutting the first chapter here, and then like splicing in something totally different for the first half of the second chapter, and then bringing concentration back again, is worth, worth reflecting on, not just as like a technique of logic or something, but in our own lives, in our own lives. What does it mean to be a a, a kamikaze pilot and learn concentration practices so that you you can more skillfully focus on killing? Right? You know this is how Japanese fighter pilots trained. Um, I used to know uh, a French uh, racing car driver, um, and uh, he studied Zen meditation to be a better racing car driver. What about athletes? And and athletes also. But in a way, for Patanjali to go further in talking about concentration, he starts tying it to morality, (laughs) which is really quite fascinating. But I'm going to save that for when we start doing our... Uh, college course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great idea. But Michael, can you think that ethics are right actually? Yeah. He's saying that, or by doing this, he's referring to it, it doesn't um, spring out of this, like noticing, going through those four stages of samadhi. Yes. Wouldn't in itself... You're jumping ahead. Yes, yes, yes to everything you said. But that's next week. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, he seems to be suggesting that um, instead of... You see, traditionally, and for those of you who study this, you know this, that the teacher says... Here are the five ethical principles. Practice them, and then one day something's going to happen. You know, it's just totally unclear. It's like, you know, the or Patabi Joyce used to say, oh, the first limbs you do, and the fourth li- and the, the last four limbs just happen. Or you know, I had a teacher who from France who used to say, the first four limbs are the first four corners of the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> <laughs> And then the other ones just spring up out of a good foundation. And I love the sound of that. Oh, you know, you do the first four, they seem easy to do. Asana practice, not hurting anyone. And then out of that, these like deep states of meditation, just like, yeah. But actually, that's not how Patanjali talks. He goes straight from talking about samadhi as being one where this self actually softens and then he goes straight into talking about how that's totally tied into the way we do our relationships and then he talks about ethics as coming out of samadhi 
rather than ethics is getting you to samadhi. You jump the gun. Yeah. So that's what we're going to do. So for next class, you need to read the chapters of the inner tradition of yoga that have diagrams. I don't know what chapters they are, but has anyone ever seen this book? It's $20. You can buy it over there. It's not online. Support Buddhist publishers. Um, those chapters that have the diagrams, we're going to go through those diagrams in detail next week. And then the week after, we're going to talk about how ethics come out of samadhi. And for that, you need to read Yoga for a World Out of Balance. <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> They're both for sale. <laughs> Because we're going to rethink from the ground up what, what it means to, to be ethical in the same way we've been, we've been looking at concentration as a technique. So um, I think we'll stop here because we made it to the end of the first chapter, even though Ronita is pushing us along into the second chapter. Breakneck speed. Let's finish chanting. Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth. Tell a friend or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.